Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned, oh, it's not quite turned four o'clock and Chris has dropped all his CDs all over the floor. Jan Bartlett with you for Tuesday Home Time. Today we'll be having a history segment with historian and author Brian McKinlay and I believe the topic is Europe post-World War One up to the present time. A push for GM food in South Africa. Mariam Mayer is the director of the African Centre for Biodiversity who was in Melbourne last week. The Middle East and Europe with Professor Emeritus James Petrus. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when just as the government got or thought it had got the brony business out of the way and it was all steam ahead for the important business of getting things undone, the bloody machine spluttered to a halt again. This time, one of those, like Bronnie, devoted to their issues, but can't understand all this fuss over Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission hanging judge, Dick Sun, not hiding his bias, addressing a caring business class party fundraiser. As a man of great integrity and principle who has served capitalist law so assiduously and, might I say modestly, with great honour, I feel the caring business class party, having given me this brief to smash the evil trade union movement, to rid this great country of these anti-true blue Aussie, anti-team true blue Aussie impediments to productivity, with so generous but necessarily secret remuneration on top of my high court pension, I had a moral obligation to give something back to the Caring Business Class Party for their greatly appreciated largesse with the public purse over and above the report I've written sentencing the evil unions and the Socialist Party to death. Uh, written Dixon, but for the hearings, the farce is still going on. Ah, uh, well, yes, I uh, will write, will write. Note it's not called the Kanga mission into alleged union corruption. Oh no, it obviously knows there is corruption. But seriously, given the old no hiding his bias, his honour said he had no idea it was a caring business class party fundraiser. The fact that he was obviously unable to read a simple invitation, no idea that all funds go to the caring business class party, might have been a hint there was some small connection. We'd have to start wondering, nay worrying, about all those decisions he made. He was known as a serial dissenter from his cohort and his honours, but the explanation seems to be a lot more simple. He just had no idea what was going on. And like Brody, the old Dice Nixon suddenly had this burst of moral integrity just as the proverbial was hitting the fan, covering, covering him in it. Nonetheless, Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, said he would defend the integrity of an esteemed jurist. This great true blue Aussie has the integrity to ignore the fact and get rid of the evil unions, get rid of the evil, corrupt unions. And Attorney General George Brandy's brain said anyone who criticised Dixon over this small oversight was in contempt. In fact, the Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect giant mine columnist, said the whole thing was a socialist plot to get the evil unions and evil socialists off the hook. 
Tiny's point about ignoring the facts may or may not be true, coming from Tiny, probably not true, because it's more likely Dixon just can't understand them. And from the lips of all no hiding his biases defenders oozes the word integrity. But hang on, didn't he splutter last week that he had no idea it was the Kerry Business Class Party function? And then this week, emails have shown he knew from the start. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. That's their version of integrity. Notice the ACTU said it would consider boycotting the Kanga mission. Surely they should have done that from the start, not give it any credibility. After all, you can't treat with contempt something that treats you with such contempt. By the way, after all those sensational P1 evil union headlines arising from untested statements by Dyson's chambers mate, the Crown Prosecutor Jeremy Stolger writes, anyone looking for the bias story in the Lord Rupert a whopping sin as it led every other news service keep looking clue left hand page next to cute dingo puppies and woman in swim gear oh and another by the way the fact that dixon no hiding his bias was on the panel that awarded tiny a road scholarship helps answer a lot of questions we've been asking for years Although, on the other hand, it's appropriate. Tiny former Socialist Party Supremo Kim Bees Knees, whose courage over the Tampa lies remains legendary. Former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself. After all, the scholarship does honour a racist arch-conservative. On evil unions, good to see balaclavas back on the wharves locking sacked. Uh, sorry, sadly, let go workers out, prompting the minister for the caring business class, Erica Betts, on the bosses, to declare this showed how evil workers were. Deep little thinker that Eric. Sadly, speaking of arch-conservative, we're seeing all these caring business class party men coming to verbal blows as Tiny gets his way over marriage equality. Well, he knows his view is the only view that matters. After all, he is big supremo. And after, after all, he does list the late and unlamented B.A. Santa Maria, his inspiration. And like Tiny, B.A. St. Mary believed his view of Catholic morality should be national law, govern the country. Dan Mannix for PM. Indeed, as an aside, heading off on a tangent, Tiny and another great inspiration, Cardinal George Pauling, a.k.a. Pell Pot, have been forced, as great men of faith, to criticise Illa Papa Fraga I, Fraga Illa Primo, over his utter crap about climate change. Sadly, he is talking utter crap because his eminence and I know that his subject matter is utter crap, is utter crap. Well, back to conservative men coming to blows. Branch stacking, one said, when Tiny brought in the hayseed and sheepshit lot to make a lay-down Mazera the vote. Plebiscite, some argue. Referendum, some argue. Even the aforementioned George Brandy's brain points out Parliament can just legislate. A referendum is redundant, a massive waste of public funds. Gay marriage split worsens, Friday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline. George and Minister for Social Insecurity scuttle them more less than coming to blows. Marriage split and I thought here we are seeing numerous cases of same-sex divorce. Tiny's obsessions leading to same-sex divorce and then I thought how can it be divorce when they don't allow marriage, aren't allowed to get married in the first place? So 
don't tell me they're all living in same-sex sin, tiny encouraging sin. Quick, quick, get George Appalling on the phone. Oh, no, no, sorry, he's too busy in same-sex divorce proceedings with Illa Papa. Interesting, the Machiavellian manoeuvre that saw the issue dominate the front pages and lead news items for a day or two also buried the burying their heads in the sand non-action on that climate change utter crap. Also Machiavellian, perhaps. Given Parliament can just legislate, after all, we have a government, even when it gets things undone, intent on reducing taxes for the rich. Sort of redundant, given they don't pay any, but I suppose they've got to keep the tax-deductible tax avoidance industry in business. Intent on slashing taxes for the rich by slashing government spending on essential services, which, as big economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, explains, is out of control, given it can just legislate and given the massive cost to the public purse of a referendum or plebiscite, what happened to this spending out of control bit? A plebiscite on holding a referendum or a referendum on holding a plebiscite? Tiny, a few weeks after explaining it was a matter for Parliament, not a referendum, has had a sudden burst of democracy. Let the people decide. And while his bring in the hayseed and sheepshit lot manoeuvre was also all about democracy, nothing to do with being tricky, we can rely on Tiny to come up with an equally non-tricky referendum question. After all, the little bald-headed bloke, who used to be big supremo back in the last even darker ages, managed to divide a question on republicanism which succeeded in outmanoeuvring the vast majority. On outmanoeuvring the vast majority, remember how 200,000 or so of us, we untrue blue Aussies, filled the city as our brave young men and women in uniform, cream of true blue Aussie youth trained killers, were heading off on yet another train killer invasion on the other side of the world to protect us from, the, from evil clinging to the coattails of our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world. 200,000 people are not a single line in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, there was obviously more pressing news, Fashion Week or something, maybe war itself, train killing. Anyway, good news, we're about to jump again to join the US. I've been further muddying the Middle East waters. We so muddied when we headed there on that last pack of lies. And I heard Socialist Party Deputy Supremo Tania Plibber, don't check your facts, say our invasion of Iraq was legal. Uh, since when? And she, they tell us, represents the left of the Socialist Party. Perhaps they mean the Socialist Party has nothing left. Finally, plenty left. US of energy giant Chevron, the environment, has this great scheme of related party loans that have its US of profits made in True Blue Aussie and its True Blue Aussie profits made in the US of. Sadly, Big Supremo Chuck Bloated the Fourth looked very upset. It means we can't pay tax to anybody. What a tragedy. The Trouble Aussie government is talking about tightening laws to prevent transnational tax avoidance. But US of firms have demanded more time. We need time to work out the loopholes. That is not to say we don't just love tax avoidance. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Let's turn now to to some history with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Today, Jan, I'm going to look at the long-range effects 
and the consequences and the reasons for this growing crisis in Europe that we hear so much about on the media. And I want to look at some aspects of that that people may not be as aware of as, as what's happening briefly. I, I was looking with horror this week on the television coverage of the events on the Greek island of Kos. For those who've not been to Kos, it's one of the group of islands called the Dodecanese Islands, or I think there are five, of which the most famous, I suppose, is Rhodes. But Kos goes back to ancient times, and it's a beautiful place. Rhodes and Kos are both enormously touristed and, in a way, uh, like all of the Greek islands, overwhelmed with tourists in a normal year. But this isn't a normal year in Greece for external and internal reasons. Kos, by the way, like Rhodes, is within sight of the Turkish coast. If you think of Port Phillip Bay, if you were at Port Arlington and standing on the beach, and I picked Port Arlington because I know it well, uh, I grew up in Geelong and when my children were small we used to get a house down at Port Arlington and go down there for the summer because it's a safe little beach for kids. And uh, you can look across from Port Arlington to... Avalon on the other side of the bay where the airport now is and that's about as far as Kos is from the Turkish coast. Anyone with a boat can get themselves across the Turkish coast waters in a few hours um, and that's happening in great numbers. People are coming of course from as far away as Afghanistan and desperate people from Syria. I thought last night watching the account of fighting in Damascus and the parts of Damascus look like Berlin at the end of World War II. And Damascus is a handsome city, great streets of ruined buildings everywhere. Now, these people have no option but to flee with their children, and what we've seen this week is a, an endless stream of people, hundreds a day, turning up in Kos, where the not very efficient Greek authorities, in their usual messy way have left these people till they are registered as they call it on the street literally in what has been a heat wave conditions greece all of the mediterranean is having a ferocious summer and august is the hot the hottest month anyone like me who's been to greece in summer knows that athens can be as hot as melbourne in its hottest heatwave conditions. Well, that's happening on Kos, and these poor people, many of them were collapsing in the street from lack of food and water, and children who hadn't been fed all day. And I saw a tragic case of a, a young, three young families, all with kids, who had arrived and had nowhere to sleep, no, not even a tent, not even a blanket. And these dear little kids, and they looked lovely kids, were hungry and thirsty, and their parents were trying to get something to feed them with overnight, let alone themselves. So, because, of course, I dare say the tourist flow has stopped because the island has thousands of people sleeping in parks and oh, the old Greek ruins, which are numerous on the island. So it's a terrible mess, and it's all because of the situation in the Mediterranean, and the Eastern Mediterranean particularly, brought about by the disastrous policies of the Western powers. And I don't just mean the stupidity of their overthrowing the Gaddafi and Saddam regimes, and in each country failing to produce an alternative government. If, if they 
had set out to overthrow Gaddafi, one would have thought they had someone lined up to take his place. But they didn't, and Libya is now a failed state. Everything has collapsed. There are armed gangs running Tripoli, and the government has fled to Tobruk. I mean, this is worse than a civil war. We've had that. And the same, of course, occurs in Iraq. Only this week there have been news reports on SBS about the collapse of basic services after the American attack on Iraq 10 years ago, which have not been replenished. There are still power blackouts, and this is in the middle of the Middle East in summer. One place on the Persian Gulf a fortnight ago, would you believe, reached 74 degrees. Now, there are unprecedented heat waves across the Middle East. And Libya and uh, Iraq, not so much Libya, but Iraq, uh, life has been made a misery by the power cuts and shortages of power to give you air conditioning and fans. Now, all of this is the product of Western policies, uh, the American attack on Iraq, aided by war criminal George Bush, as one of his Labour leaders in Britain has recently denounced him. The same uh, crisis is, of, of course, affecting Egypt, Uh, Syria, of course, is the worst example now. So you have an arc of countries, and including Afghanistan, I might add. The only stable society in this whole region is, of course, Iran. Iran, much bedeviled by the American riot, and uh, recently, of course, opened up by Obama, and earning uh, him the ferocious uh, criticism of the Saudis, who um, are... enemies of the Shiite regime in Iraq and pretty desperate now to save themselves because if you notice there's been an escalation of internal conflict in Saudi, once pretty well unknown, and the Saudi regime is clearly under fire and the consequences of its fall to another fundamentalist group, it's not going to be a democratic revolution in Saudi, is nevertheless a great worry for the Americans as all these things are for the Western powers, who have been interfering in the Middle East since the end of the First World War. When a thing called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, secret agreement, between the British and the French, named after the two men involved, uh, two senior diplomats, partitioned out the Middle East after the war on a secret plan to the Western powers. Turkey escaped by sheer luck and the work of Kemal Ataturk. But Syria and Lebanon went to the French, Egypt to the British, who had recently controlled it before the war anyway, Libya to the Italians, who were the nominal rulers at that time, but only just, and uh, the British took Baghdad, uh, Iraq, and the Gulf states came under British control. So the great powers partitioned out the Middle East among themselves. The French, of course, had the colony, the colonies, the countries of North Africa. Now, um, all of this led to a, a generation of colonial rule, and then post-war uprisings broke out all across the Middle East in the 1950s. The most famous, the Algerian War, which saw the death of a million people, uh, Algerians mostly, of course, and created a a great domestic crisis in France, which brought de Gaulle out of retirement and back as President of the Republic. And he negotiated, very sensibly, uh, an agreement to get France out of Algeria and Morocco. 
Morocco wasn't a problem, but Algeria was because it had a component of French citizens who'd been given land there, much of it stolen from the old Arab inhabitants, just like Palestine, of course. But uh, and eventually, in the late 1960s, de Gaulle was able to get out of Algeria and negotiate a settlement with a famous comment. He was the man who saved France from a, a civil war between the military and the left in France in the late 1960s. And de Gaulle said when asked to become president, and he did, how many times do I have to save France? Uh, referring back to his wartime leadership of the anti-Nazi free French movement. Well, that's, in a way, solved the problems of North Africa. And the Suez Crisis... Uh, which the British and the French and the Israelis used in an attempt to overthrow Nasser, who had emerged as the greatest Arab leader of modern times, and uh, a secular leader. The Suez Crisis in 1956 saw Nasser cemented in power till his death and brought Nasserite governments to power in places like Syria and Iraq, but this didn't really solve the problems. The problems of the Palestinians remained. And, of course, a series of wars between Israel and the Arab world. The 67 war seeing the Israelis um, eventually conquer the West Bank, bringing us down to the problems of the Palestinians today. Now, you might wonder what all this has to do with the European Commission and the European community. But while these events involving especially Britain and France, but also, of course, the United States, were occurring in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the European Commission was coming into existence. Now, uh, like many things, the Commission began with good intentions. During the Nazi occupation of most of Europe in the 1940s, during World War II, uh, some French leaders... Uh, a man called Bonnet and another can, m man called Manette, and de Gaulle took up the notion that Europe's troubles, which had led to both world wars after all, the human race has suffered pretty much in the last century and a half of wars caused by the inability of European countries to manage their affairs without attacking each other. Now, during the war, leaders, some of them in exile from the Nazis, mapped out the idea of, of European cooperation, and that came after 1945 and the liberation. The first things was what we call the European Iron and Steel Community, in which iron and steel were freed of duties, and French coal could be used in neighbouring German steel mills and vice versa. And, and the steel community was very successful. And out of that came the idea of a a thing called the European Common Market. You, you'll be familiar with the term, Jan, I'm sure. It was always used until fairly recent times. This included three large countries, Germany, Italy and France, and three small countries, the what are called the Benelux countries, the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg. Now, that was quite successful. They had a lowered tariff duties were dropped and um, goods flowed freely. Each country had its own currency and its own banking system, of course, and its own citizenship, but it worked quite effectively, and that led to the extension, gradually, of the European community. The British remained out until well into the 70s, due to the conservatism of many British politicians, 
and uh, generally to the British attitude towards Europe, but the European common market was seen as pretty successful, very successful in terms of Germany, which recovered remarkably. And the Germans, of course, by the way, were freed of all their war debts. Unlike the poor old Greeks today, uh, the Germans were persuaded, or the Americans were persuaded, to allow the Germans to be freed, forgiven of their debts, which they had in Hitler's time, of course, before the Second World War, because the Americans were concerned about the incursion of the Soviet Union into Europe, especially Eastern Germany. Now, the Germans got up pretty lightly, and uh, Germany's economy recovered in the 50s and 60s wonderfully well. Well, the Germans have always been a highly skilled people, and the rebuilding of their country and of their industries provided work and employment. It was a kind of New Deal in Germany. The Germans called it the working wonder, Wirtschaftswunder, and uh, it was uh, a wonder that the Germans recovered so brilliantly. In the 60s and 70s, other countries began to think that they would join it, the European community. Uh, it was now more likely called the European community than the common market. The British eventually, after a referendum, did join... De Gaulle had never wanted the British in. He thought the British were always a sort of, um, what's the word, uh, a stalking horse, a Trojan horse, perhaps, for the Americans. He always thought the Americans wanted to take over the running of Europe, if they could. During the Cold War period, of course, the Americans had military forces everywhere in Europe anyway. But the European Commission... Uh, did admit the British, and a number of small countries then followed in the years ahead, including what people call the Club Med countries. Club Med is a holiday chain of resorts, cheap resorts in Europe, and um, people used a rather derogative term. They called Portugal, Spain, Italy and Greece Club Med, and those four countries joined, and from the beginning there were people who said, oh, there are problems here. Uh, these countries have much less prosperous economies than Germany or France or the Netherlands or Sweden, which later joined, and Denmark. So the Club Med countries were always seen as being a danger point. Now, the next big thing in Europe was, of course, the decision to adopt a single currency. Never before in human history have separate countries, quite a number of them, some 20-odd now, had one currency out of the control of the government of each country. I mean, in Australia, we, the government has control of the value of the Australian dollar, in a sense. Governments use this in terms of economic problems. But in Europe, the euro was really controlled by the central bank. And the bankers emerged as a very powerful force because they were above and beyond the control of governments. Now, the other thing was the European Commission, and you might wonder just how it's run. Well, the commission consists of commissioners appointed by the countries who are a kind of cabinet, if you'll use an Australian term. Uh, the big countries get two commissioners, Germany, Britain, France, Italy. Uh, smaller ones, like Belgium, get one. And they act as a kind of cabinet. But unlike a cabinet in our system, like the Abbott government, for all its sins and disasters, is under the control, in a way, of the parliament. Or perhaps it's the other way around. There is a European parliament, and it can debate things and carry high-minded resolutions and, and take over the running 
of minor affairs, but the big matters, the economy and all of those things, are still run by the European Commission, the Cabinet, which is appointed by national governments, not the Parliament. Now, that's not our model of government, or indeed of any country. I mean, in the American system, you have a separate Congress and President, but the President appoints and dismisses his ministers. That, of course, has led the real force behind the European Commission and the way it runs Europe been the powerful banking interests and huge corporate interests, of which Germany is the heartland. And that's led to this... Um, problem with the Germans and the Greeks, but especially Germany's, uh, the indebtedness of the Greeks to Germany. Of course, when the financial crisis of 2007 and 8 broke and the American banks crashed, the European Commission took over its powers uh, more seriously, but the Germans managed to escape, like Australia did in a way, uh, by, in Germany's case, allowing its industries, which are many and brilliant, to benefit from German bank loans to people privately and to governments in countries like Greece, Portugal, Spain and Italy. So you give the Greeks a lot of money. They go off and buy German cars, the wealthy Greeks. Uh, other Greeks buy German goods of one sort or another. And Germany sailed through the crisis pretty much untouched. But it meant that countries like Greece and Spain and Portugal now had this huge debt, much of it private, borrowed through the German banks as they operated in Greece and Portugal. And so all of those mid-club mid-countries are now in a desperate situation uh, with high unemployment, a huge debt owing, government austerity, which as Paul Krugman, the American ambassador, uh, the American economist, has said is not working and never works. If you cut back on public spending by making cuts to social services and wages, then of course spending falls and people don't buy things and the government doesn't get taxes and the GST is not paid. So the countries of the European community are now in a desperate situation, worsened by two things. At home, in Britain, in France and everywhere else, there are now parties of the right that are saying, let's leave the European community. In France, the National Front, a semi-fascist party, really, run by Marie Le Pen, is getting 25 to 30% in the polls for this daring idea of France just leaving Europe, even going back to using the franc. Uh, and in the case of Britain, we're seeing the same thing with this group called UKIP, who want to leave the community which, in fact, the Scots government in Edinburgh says they will not accept. The Scots are great Europeans and always have been. So everywhere there are now political crises arising out of the Union, out of its uh, policies of the German banks, and especially loaning money, out of the debt of people like the Greeks, and Portugal and Spain are hardly better off. I read recently that over 50% of young people under 30 in Spain are unemployed and have no prospect of jobs. And it's affecting the whole social structure. I mean, young people in normal societies in their 30s get married, have children. That's the way of the world. And move out and find a house in which to raise their kids. Well, that can't happen in Spain because you've got this army of young people living with their parents, perhaps living with a partner in their parents' a flat, most likely, 
but unable uh, to think of raising families. So the whole social structure of capitalism in Europe is distorting European social life and family life, and in fact the whole human pattern. Now, added to this, 18 months ago, the American State Department and people in it set about overthrowing the government of the Ukraine, and we know all about that. It was a coup aimed against a pro-Russian government in the Ukraine, and some of the strategists, for want of a better word, in Washington, and if you look at the Middle East, you'll see how incompetent they are, uh, thought they would overthrow the Ukrainian government, and did, and install a pro-American government which would threaten the Russians, who reacted very promptly with that, and we know all about the events in the Ukraine in the last 18 months, and in the Crimea, of course, and that's been a disaster, and the Americans then persuaded many of the European countries to impose sanctions on trade with Russia. Now, that was a self-defeating tactic. I read recently, for instance, that the Dutch flour industry, its number one customer in recent years, has been in Russia, with, after all, something like 220 million people. It's a big market for cut flowers. And the Dutch tulip industry has been rocked by sanctions the Russians have put in return on flowers from Europe, and they're buying them from places like Turkey and, and some South American countries. They pay more for them. They'd rather buy the, the, the Dutch. But it's hit the Dutch economy, and that's happened in other parts of Europe. Poland had its major market for apples in Russia, and they've been banned by the Russians. And so the Russians have suffered, but so have the Poles and the Dutch. So the American strategy in the Ukraine has brought real disaster for the European economies, and many of them would be happy to go back to their old relations with Russia, but Putin isn't having any of that, while the sanctions remain on Russia itself, which is also being hurt. So the troubles of the euro bloc and of the euro currency, the euro itself as it's called, have now affected not just the European community but Russia. The Americans don't have much trade with Europe in the way Russia does. Uh, for instance, the Russians are the biggest customers for the Germans. Germany's number one customer for almost all manufactured goods is Russia. And in fact, the Russians have turned to a new trade deal with China. And the Chinese make everything and are willing to be involved with that. And this new trade deal, which is also based on Russian gas and oil, is going to change Russia's relations with Europe, all to the worse for the European community. So uh, we come now to this situation in history where everything that has been achieved in Europe since World War II is up for grabs. And in some countries, like Greece, the uh, whole national economy is creating a situation, somebody said recently in Greece, that the Greeks are now living, many millions of them, are living in conditions as bad as the Great Depression of the 1930s. Athens is full of refugees, but full of homeless people. The tourist industry, the great staple of Greece, a third of the entire national income comes from tourism, has largely collapsed as tourists have wondered whether it's safe to go to Greece anymore. And certainly it's not safe to go to the Dodecanese Islands to cause the roads, which are swarming with uh, refugees piling in every day off boats from Syria and making the tourist uh, venture uh, well, unwelcome and unpopular. Uh, so this is the crisis 
confronting the European community uh, in the second decade of the 21st century. And thanks to historian and author Brian McKinlay. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening on your digital radio, 855. You could be listening on your ordinary radio, 3CR. 8.55, or you could be listening on your computer. You can listen to this program and all the programs on 3CR for the coming week. And then it turns over to the next week. But if you would like the programs to be sent to your computer, you do that through podcasting. So if you want those different venues, it's 3cr.org.au. And I believe it's pretty simple to Work your way around the front page and work out what you have to do. The Melbourne Street Medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. Join us for the launch of Green Left Radio, a new wing of the People's Media on 3CR. Featuring a massive lineup of radical beats and rhythms from Ezekiel Ox, Davinia Providential, New Dub City released the dub's DJ set. Ray Pereira and Kanchana Karnaratna on Afro-Lankan drumming system. And Pressure Drop. Friday, August 21st at 7pm at the Kindred Studios, 212A Whitehall Street, Yarraville. Full bar and Sri Lankan feast available from 7pm. $15 full and $10 concession. Proceeds go to 3CR and Green Left Weekly. And don't forget, you can catch Green Left Radio Fridays from 8 to 8.30 a.m. on 3CR. Hi, Ivan Hexter here. When the community battle against East West Link started with drilling behind my house, I took my camera out. 60 hours of footage later... I need your help to tell this community story. The sheer arrogance of a government trying to foist a multi-billion dollar project on us. Tunnel Vision, the story of right beating might. Donate to the Tunnel Vision crowdfunding campaign to be part of the Tunnel Vision project. www.chuffed.org That's www.chuffed.org then look for Tunnel Vision. Be part of Tunnel Vision, the real story of the East-West Link. If the person in front of you has got a belt on, hold on to the belt in front of you. Tunnel Vision is a 3CR supporter. Today and next week, an interview with Mariam Mayette, who is a founder of the African Centre for Biosafety, a non-profit organisation working to protect Africa's biodiversity, traditional knowledge, seed systems, genetic diversity, food production systems, culture and diversity from the threats of genetic engineering and industrial agriculture. 
Mary was in Australia to meet with activists and speak at public meetings and the topic for her meeting here in Melbourne was Colonising Africa with GM Food and Crops, the Australian Connection. I asked Marion about the history of agriculture in Africa, acknowledging that Africa is a huge continent, but in general, prior to the push for GM food production, how communities farmed and protected the health of their land, their food supplies, remained self-sufficient and controlled pests, etc., I think we have to distinguish between South Africa and the rest of the continent because South Africa's had a fairly well-developed industrial agriculture sector for a long, long time, which we inherited from colonial times, from apartheid, since the advent of commercial agriculture and the introduction of hybrid seed. It's always been chemical-based. Because of the large-scale land dispossession, Black farmers were squeezed into like 13% of the land, 87% of the population occupied 13% of the land, so it was very degraded, overgrazed, and farming skills were wiped out over time. The rest of the continent is characterized by small-scale agriculture based on agroecological principles, and then you have, coupled with that, plantation crops, cash crops, you know, the coffees, the teas, and so on. So they sustained their farming systems by adopting a range of agroecological principles, and it's still intact. But that's not to say that small-scale agriculture doesn't need support, you know, is an ideal situation. It still needs a great deal of support in terms of infrastructure, training, uh, assisting farmers with seed-saving, storing is a post-harvest storage is a major issue. So when did the push by the GM companies into Africa begin? Well, in South Africa, the push began in the late 80s. So they were already field-trialling GM cotton during the apartheid era. Uh, When the new government came into being, they actually passed the Genetically Modified Organisms Act. So it's really under their watch that uh, commercial growing of GM crops began. So I would say that from about 1999, they began to grow GM cotton and shortly thereafter GM maize. So a good 15, between 15 and 17 years in South Africa only. What about some of the other countries? The other countries remained close to GM until fairly recently in the last, say, three to four years, Burkina Faso began to grow GM crops, but only cotton on about 500,000 hectares. Monsanto's GM cotton And then very recently, in the last, say, 18 months, South Sudan, also cotton. But that's all. And that's not a lot if you think about that we have 54 countries in Africa. But the push is coming strong and hard. Kenya, who has had a ban in place for the last two years, is lifting the ban. And Kenya has always been targeted by the GM industry for GM maize and cotton growing because it's a very big agriculture economy. It's a big and important country in East Africa. So the push is coming quite strong now. A lot of field trials happening in Ghana, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, on cowpea, lots of trials in Uganda, cotton, banana. Tanzania's changed its law to allow researchers to grow 
what they're calling a drought-tolerant crop, also Monsanto Gates funded. So things are beginning to shift quite quickly, and I think the biotech industry has gained a lot of ground in the last couple of years, in the last 10 years or so. What are the farmers being promised with GMOs? High yields, increased incomes, pesticide reduction. And what's the reality? The reality is that small-scale farmers are, generally speaking, resource poor. Even in terms of the Green Revolution push, trying to introduce certified corporate seed to small farmers is failing because of the high cost of not only certified seed, but also the inorganic fertilizers and pesticides. So just on a cost angle, it's just out of the reach of majority of small-scale farmers. And let's just say most of the farmers in the rest of the continent, if you take South Africa apart, um, are small-scale farmers. So I think they're targeting an elite group of farmers who may be able to consolidate land and may be able to access credit to be able to afford expensive inputs. And then we all know that particularly the BT technologies are inherently unsustainable. And in South Africa already, Monsanto had to abandon its uh, premier maize variety because of um, massive uh, pest infestation. So we know that ecologically it's unsustainable. We know that socially it's inequitable. And I think the corporates are approaching it in a very linear, one-dimensional way that a farmer will necessarily have an increase in yields, farmers will make a profit, and farmers will um, see an increased or, you know, their livelihoods would be improved. But it doesn't always work like that because farmers have no control over price of grain. They have no control over price of seed, price of chemical inputs, and often you find that farmers are in debt because um, they can't really repay the expensive loans uh, taken out to buy uh, chemical and expensive seed. So, And they're losing the ability to seed save? So one of the main things with industrial agriculture, whether it's GM or non-GM, because of the intellectual property rights regime in place in um, many parts of Africa now based on an international Uh, agreement on plant variety protection called UPOV. Farmers are not allowed to recycle protected varieties. They're also not allowed to market their own seed. Only certified seed is allowed to be marketed. So farmer managed seed systems are being attacked from both sides. One, from the angle that if they buy Whether it's GM or non-GM certified seed, protected seed, they can't recycle it. Two, they can't engage in any kind of local rural trade as they have been doing in terms of their own seed unless it's certified. And they can't meet those strict phytosanitary international seed association testing standards for seed quality and purity during seed production. So they're squeezed from both sides. It's just an unsustainable model. It's just an inappropriate model or farming system for Africa. Is it a fact that the new seed is hybrid? That they have to buy 
new seed each year. Not all seed are hybrid. Maize definitely is all hybrid. Most of the corporate seed is hybrid. Uh, There are some open-pollinated varieties that come out of public research institutions and also leguminous seeds are open-pollinated varieties. But the corporates are not interested in those seeds. They're really interested in the maize market. That's a, a real big market for them. And a lot of the maize uh, seed or the maize farming system, hybrid maize, and if they introduce GM, GM will be the same, is subsidized by uh, a system called Farmer Input Subsidy Program. So the state uses public resources to pay Monsanto the cost of the seed and to fertilize the companies for the cost of the inorganic fertilizers. And so it's a captive market for them. And maize is the most important crop in a lot of Africa, is that the case? Yeah, in southern and east Africa it's a, it's a staple crop. People subsist on it two to three times a day. Well, let's talk about the reaction to this and the opposition to it you know, with a group such as yours. How did that come into existence? I think that like most activist groups, it took a lot of activists by surprise because... Deals were already being made behind closed doors. There was really no public consultation, no discussion. It was just political decisions made that we're now going to change our farming system, we're going to introduce GM, and the reaction has, has been one of anger and outrage because it's quite draconian to force-feed people. It's, it's such a big break from even conventional breeding So I think that it began around access to information, trying to understand the technology. I think people were really offended by the commodification and privatization of life, patents on gene sequences, uh, the monopoly and control. All of this also took place at a time when there was a lot of corporate concentration going on. So biotech companies were being bought up by the old agrochemical companies. They bought up seed companies. They came to South Africa. They bought up seed companies in the early 90s. And I don't think people really realize what the implications of that would be. So I think that we were grappling with a lot of changes, very quick changes. And then as we began to become engaged more deeper in the discourse, we were then introduced to the whole biosafety aspects in discourse, and then we were part of our government delegation on occasion, sometimes part of an NGO representation of the Cartagena Protocol on Biosafety, trying to negotiate international rules for the safety, food safety, animal safety, and environmental health. Can you explain that a little bit more about biosafety, what it actually means? Yeah. When I think about the protocol, I always think about the Australian delegation coming there and trying to block (laughs) good provisions and good legislation. But it's really premised around a lot of concern by scientists that there are a great deal of uncertainties about the potential adverse impacts arising from the genetic modification of our food on several levels. First, What will this mean for human health when you begin to be so invasive in terms of making new food in a laboratory, artificial synthetic food by crossing 
genes across the species barrier, making artificial gene constructs in a laboratory and having to transfer that in a very blunt way from one organism to the other. The discourse is very much about the kind of safety assessments that's required of the Monsantos and Gentas of the world before they can even begin to release any GMOs into the environment. What are the necessary steps, the necessary scientific experiments they should do in a laboratory and the laboratory conditions to ensure that the GMO in question will pose no risk to human health, animal health, and the environment. So that was very much the discussion and what that entails, what kind of assessments should be conducted. And so that was a very contentious period of time in terms of international law and lawmaking because the biotech industry and several governments, including Australia, did not want to see a legally binding set of rules come into play to regulate this industry. They wanted it unregulated and treated in the same way as conventionally bred seed. And to a large extent, it is approached as substantially equivalent to conventional seed. But there are certain regulatory steps that they have to take anyway. But in our experience, it's very much rubber stamping and accepting data produced by the gene giants. So it's, it's really quite farcical. Why was Australia so against it? I think they were trying to protect their export markets. Um, they were concerned that uh, countries of export would impose regulatory hurdles and it would delay shipments leaving Australia as one of the major grain exporting countries. And it was interested in GM. Of course, we know you grow GM cotton and uh, GM canola as well. It's actually GM rapeseed. Canola is the shortened version for Canada oil. We all call it canola. So it was just economic interests that they were concerned about. And they really gave us a very hard time along the years, together with the U.S., who's not a party to the mother agreement called the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity, And eventually we got a very weak and watered-down international agreement that doesn't really regulate bulk shipments of GM grains that are traded around the world for food, feed, and processing. So in a way it was a victory for them, and in a way it was also a victory for us because at least we have an international set of rules that say that GMOs are inherently different to conventional seed and food, and it has to be regulated separately, and it needs its own special rules and procedures. So I think our critique about GM is inextricably bound to our critique of industrial agriculture. It's all part of the same package. And as I said, it's based on a whole set of farming principles and farming practices that lend itself to Gross inequity in the food system lends itself to ecological disasters. See, like pesticides run off into our waters, polluting the environment. The use of inorganic fertilizers, for example, that accompanies GM crop planting. I mean, just leaching off all the nutrients of the soil pollution. It's just pollution, pollution, pollution. So... Those are some of our concerns. But in terms of GM itself, as we said, 
a great deal of scientific uncertainty, shoddy science on the part of the biotech industry, lack of food safety data. I would say the quality of food is the same or the lack of quality of food would be the same as its conventional counterpart. It's, it's industrial agriculture, it's corporate seed. Um, but I think that our concerns are more about the potential negative impact on our bodies, on children, on our animals, because we're consuming transgenic proteins and that we would not consume in nature in that form. We are concerned about adverse impacts on the environment, the loss of biodiversity, the contamination of wild relatives. Traditional varieties have already been of maize contaminated. Uh, we're concerned about commodification of life. We're concerned about the control the corporates have over our food system, the limitations on the part of farmers in terms of choice of seed. They have totally become de-skilled. They're not participating in any kind of plant breeding anymore. They're passive consumers, and they've become cogs in a big machinery orchestrated by multinational players who sit around in boardrooms in some foreign country mapping out agriculture systems all over the world. Is there a concern with babies being fed GM food? I think that there are major concerns because if you look at the South African situation, for example, other than mother's milk, the maize meal porridge is some of the first foods babies are given to eat. And so we're very concerned that children, young babies, are vulnerable. They still have to develop an immune system, and they're not given a fighting chance if they have to consume food, in respect of which we have a great deal of safety concerns. It's very regrettable that the biotech industry hounded and persecuted Professor Seralini the way they had, because that was an important discussion beginning about expand on that yeah some of the negative impacts of particularly gma so professor serolini conducted what started out as to toxicological studies and he had control samples of rats and he had rats that he fed uh, gmas to over a period of time and these rats developed huge cancerous tumors and lesions particularly the female rats so he was attacked because they said the study didn't follow scientific rigor because it turned out to be a cancer study and he didn't have the requisite number of rats. But anyway, they persecuted him to the extent that his study and paper was withdrawn from the journal and the biotech industry claimed a victory and discredited his studies. But what they did is they stifled an important discussion and debate and if there were lessons to be learned and if, if there were some further studies to be conducted, then that would have been a good place to have picked up from the Seralini study. So the point is that there's just no intellectual and academic space for scientists to begin to really delve into the safety issues because they're not allowed to. And if they try to do that, they close down, hounded, persecuted, their homes are broken into, they lose their jobs, they lose their credibility. It's really extremely vicious and dangerous for scientists out there. I'd imagine the push into Africa is really growing at pace because they can't get into Europe properly. 
they're in America, I know that. But the big population that there is in Africa, if they can take over their, their land and the seeds and things in those countries, they'll be set. Is that correct? You see, Africa's going through a very interesting transition. We have one of the youngest populations in the world, right? About 65% of the population is under 35. We have a very young population. We have an increasingly urbanized population, a burgeoning middle class. So there's a shift in terms of a lot of the population moving out of the rural areas into urban areas. With that comes consumer demand for food and other products. And that is the, a market they have their eyes on, and that's why they're interested in, for example, the, the GM cowpea, because they see a very interesting urban market. Consumers who are concerned about health and want to eat less meat, eat more legumes that are high in protein. And so that what they do is they watch the market. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is that... The world is running out of arable land and water resources because we've destroyed so much of it. And Africa is one of the last enclaves left. And so, yes, all kinds of corporations, banks, because we see a, a trend towards financialization of African agriculture. The banks are heavily invested in land, particularly speculation in land. And so the resources that Africa has is very, very attractive for speculators and even other governments who want to grow food to feed their own citizens. So there's, I'm sure you would have read about all kinds of land grabbing going on with the complicity of local elites and African governments to grow food, to grow food crops for biofuels, for animal feed. In fact, the World Bank released a report in 2009 where they mapped Africa from Mozambique right across the Guinea Savannah up into past Senegal as the areas that they earmarked for corporate investment and takeover. And a part of what they want to grow is GM. Like in Mozambique, in the corridor, the pro-Savannah corridor, they want to grow GM soya because Mozambique exports soya anyway. So there's definitely different eyes set on Africa for different reasons, but the biotech industry is right in there. And you've been listening to Mariam Mayet, who's the, a founder of the African Centre for Biosafety. Mariam was in, in Melbourne last week. I think she was in other states as well, talking about colonising Africa with GM food and crops, the Australian connection. And on the program next week, Mariam will be talking about that Australian connection with colonising Africa with GM food and crops. It's coming up to two minutes past five o'clock. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. 
Earlier this morning, I spoke with Professor Emeritus James Petrus at his home in New York and began with his essay titled Erdogan and Netanyahu Declare War and asked him first about Erdogan, the Turkish Prime Minister. Erdogan is at war internally, externally and everywhere. He's uh, started a major assault on the Kurds in Iraq. He's been arresting uh, Kurds inside of Turkey. There is sufficient circumstantial evidence to say that he was uh, involved, his government was involved in the uh, bombing of the uh, youth camp of the uh, Kurds near the border with Syria. He's uh, supporting the U.S. uh, assault on the Bashar Assad government, uh, claiming that he's uh, fighting uh, ISIS. His war internally has been going on for some time uh, and has gotten especially intense in the last period with the uh, protests of the uh, secular left. He's really revealing his colors as a uh, reactionary in the Middle East and uh, his attempts to cover himself by uh, declaring uh, opposition to ISIS comes too late and too little because over the last four years he's been involved in allowing the uh, Islamist extremists to cross the border and engage in the uh, armed struggle against Syria. We don't know exactly the affiliation of all the uh, Islamists, but it's uh, certainly been a major passageway for extremists from Western Europe and North America to enter Syria. He's been on the scene for quite a while, though, hasn't he? What's changed? What's changed is several things. One is the Kurds have been very successful in fighting the terrorists in Syria and Iraq, and as a result, they've gained a lot of prestige and territory and autonomy. And uh, I think that uh, Erdogan is fearful that that will be an example for the Kurds in uh, Turkey to seek uh, greater progress in their uh, attempts to get national recognition. I think that's one factor. The second is that a secular democratic party has emerged with strong Kurdish backing and one representation in uh, Congress and denied him a uh, absolute majority and uh, he's very angry about that because he wanted to get an absolute majority in order to establish a presidential regime which is a a euphemism for a uh, highly centralized authoritarian government so he has uh, several reasons for escalating his military posturing he thinks that By provoking a war with the Kurds, uh, he can uh, round up enough Turkish votes that will allow him to uh, gain that kind of majority which he wants in order to change the nature of uh, Turkish government. What about his relationship with the United States? How important is that to him? Well, he's always been a stalwart of NATO. The U.S. has uh, operated out of bases in Turkey. Uh, Turkey was a a forward position against the uh, USSR. It still functions as kind of a uh, listening post for the U.S. 
in regard to uh, Russia and uh, the uh, Caucasus. He also uh, has been an important ally of the U.S. regarding some of its major uh, conflicts in the region. He was involved with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt uh, that has been overthrown, but he was a kind of go-between there in order to uh, facilitate uh, Washington's uh, transition from Mubarak to the Brotherhood. And now, of course, uh, he uh, doesn't play much of a role in Egypt, but uh, he's been a very uh, important intermediary for the U.S., in terms of backing U.S. positions in the Middle East. What about the economy of Turkey? Turkey is in very serious shape because it's running a big trade deficit. It depends on foreign capital to come in to make up uh, the shortfalls in the uh, trade deficit. And uh, it has uh, lost the uh, dynamism that it early experienced. It's stagnating. It has uh, serious problems of financing its deficits. Its currency has uh, currently been severely devalued. And uh, I-, I think that the boom years of Erdogan's early uh, time in office is over. I think the hard times are coming, and uh, he doesn't have a, a- an alternative uh, strategy to re- retain any kind of uh, semblance of growth. So I think internally his problems will be multiplying and I think that Turkey will have to face a severe adjustment in its economy which will probably provoke greater internal opposition. And there are people willing to stand up against him. There has been a fair amount of violence in recent weeks. Uh, Yes, especially in the eastern, uh, in Izmir and uh, in uh, Istanbul and and, uh, on the Aegean areas, I think. They're less so in terms of the uh, uh, interior, but he also faces a tremendous upsurge in opposition from the Kurds, which represent about one-fifth of the country. So if we add together the uh, opposition in the west and in uh, in the east, I think uh, Turkey is in for a a more tumultuous time in the uh, years to come. Is the cooperation between the Kurdish people of Turkey and the other countries as well that gives them a united front? The Kurds have worked out a modus vivendi in uh, in Iraq with the uh, Baghdad government. They have some kind of an understanding with Bashar Assad. It's not a uh, formal understanding, but it's understood that as long as they're fighting the terrorists, I'm talking about the uh, Syrian Kurds, they seem to be on the same side with the Syrian government against the uh, uh, Islamic terrorists, uh, even though they have their own demands, which are greater autonomy. And perhaps down the road, they're looking toward a greater Kurdish state, which includes parts of Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Turning to Netanyahu's declaration of war, you're focused on a particular person, Professor Delico. Who is he? Delico was a very important uh, person in uh, editing and uh, screening out material uh, questions, serious questions about the nature and uh, leading up to uh, 
the uh, 9-11 bombing of the World Trade Center and the uh, Pentagon in Washington. Uh, he excluded any mention of the suspicious behavior of Mossad agents who were videoing the process, who were picked up with uh, uh, suspicions that they had been involved in some fashion with the uh, 9-11. He also discounted questions about the secondary explosions inside the World Trade Center. He excluded any mention of the uh, role that the U.S. played in, uh, in provoking opposition in the Islamic countries. He did not look at the uh, issue of whether bin Laden was actually involved because uh, bin Laden originally had, had stated that he had nothing to do with 9-11, and then there was some fuzzy recording which they claimed uh, indicated he was involved. So there was a lot of cover-up, uh, Zelico. Zelico has also been very prominent in writing a book about the importance of uh, having false flag issues like Pearl Harbor and others provoking uh, these kind of attacks as uh, ways of mobilizing the country behind uh, unpopular war policies. So there is some suspicion here about Zelico's role in uh, allowing the 9-11 incident to come to the fore as a detonator for the U.S. Uh, war on terrorism. Zelico also has been very much in favor of uh, provoking Iran and, uh, and arousing the U.S. public to launch a series of provocations against Iran in order to bring them on the side of Israel. The idea here is that Zelico and is largely operating and on behalf of Israel in the uh, high positions in the U.S., uh, though he's not an overt uh, celebrant of Israel in terms of uh, going out of his way. His positions coincide very strongly with Israel's positions, and uh, they seem to be the prime beneficiaries of whatever... Uh, public positions and uh, responsibilities that he exercises. He's a politician disguised as an academic who bears watching. And Netanyahu? Netanyahu is, uh, is a criminal. He's uh, someone who's engaged in uh, violations of human rights. He should be prosecuted as a war criminal. His bombing of Gaza, his blockade of Gaza, his killing of uh, hundreds of children and women and unarmed civilians is very well known. The United Nations missions that have gone there have identified his, his actions and the government policies. He's been extremely aggressive in uh, dispossessing Palestinians and settling and establishing colonies in the West Bank. Uh, which are for Jews only. He has a cabinet which is probably the most right-wing, pro-racist policy-making uh, instrument in Israel's history. He has locked up hundreds of Palestinians without charges. Currently, there is a uh, Palestinian political prisoner who's never been charged but is on a hunger strike and in a coma, which may provoke a, a major uprising. In every single way, he's bombed Syria. He's threatening uh, to undermine the uh, U.S. 
Iranian nuclear accord. He's mobilized all of his proxies in the United States, the major uh, Jewish organizations that are pro-Israel. He's uh, humiliated the American president. He's bought and, and bombed the uh, U.S. Congress. Uh, in every way, he's been a disaster. The U.S. government has lost its capacity to articulate its own foreign policy, in large part because of the way in which Netanyahu and his gang have intervened in the U.S. political process. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus from Bingham University in New York. Are they just waiting for Obama to go before pushing forward? Uh, no, I think they're pushing forward. They, they never stop. It's not just the so-called lobby. That's a fiction. The lobby is part of the Israeli uh, fifth column in the U.S. What's really crucial is the number of officials in the government who follow Netanyahu's line. And these people have been making policy. The In Treasury Department, the terror, uh, anti-terror organization has been controlled by two appointees literally out of the American-Israel Political Action Committee. Uh, and they've been pushing the uh, sanctions and escalating the sanctions against Iran. They have been engaged in uh, building up an, a formidable propaganda machine in and out of the government, in and out of the mass media, that have taken up the cudgels against the agreement that uh, Obama has signed. They've mobilized a good part of the Senate and the uh, Congress, it's a question of whether they can get two-thirds vote to override a presidential veto in order to sabotage it. And this is unprecedented. Here you have a, a country which claims to be a global power, the number one power in the world, being subject to the uh, whims of a uh, tin horn authoritarian prime minister at, at, like Netanyahu. And, and the um, major factor here is the uh, 52 presidents of the major um, so-called American organizations, the principal Jewish organizations in America, which unfortunately uh, look to Israel for their uh, allegiances and uh, the formulation of their policies. And they have contributed large amounts of money to buy congressional votes. They have engaged in very intense activity on the municipal, state, and national levels, propagandizing for all in favor of all of Israel's criminal actions against the Palestinians. They've got candidates for the Republican Democratic Party in their pockets. Hillary Clinton uh, did the most bizarre thing uh, today. She declared that the damage to the destruction and humanitarian crisis in Gaza is a is the result of the victims, not the uh, perpetrators. She says uh, Hamas is responsible for the killings in its own, of its own people instead of identifying Israeli bombers, uh, missiles, and uh, incursions for these damage. This kind of perverse thinking uh, reflects the twists and turns of American politicians at the behest of uh, the state of Israel. Can I just digress for a moment, James? 
Do you believe we will ever hear the true story of what happened on 9-11? Well, I don't say never and I don't say yes. Uh, it depends on a political decision in the United States. There's certainly uh, the inadequacy of Zelikow's directed uh, commission and his interventions and the censor censorship makes a farce of that report. I think we would need a, uh, a legislative initiative here. We would need a change in the outlook of uh, some of the crucial Congress people. Uh, we would need a president who was willing to look at these issues again uh, while they are still fresh. I, as I say, that's a political decision. It doesn't seem likely, at least in the next few years, and that's unfortunate because it's still fresh in the mind of a lot of the uh, witnesses and uh, engineers and other people who uh, have something to offer, alternative views of what happened at 9-11. Do you have a view? I'm a, a kind of agnostic. I don't believe the government version... I'm not convinced that there was a, a conspiracy of bombers involved in blowing up the buildings. The most probable uh, result was that the Israelis in the U.S. knew that the uh, bombings were going to take place, and they allowed them to happen. And that's why the Israelis were there taking videos of the destruction. And that's why Condoleezza Rice said that, uh, yes, we expected the air piracy, but we didn't know when or where and then what would result from it. And that's verbatim from her. So I think the most likely thing is that the U.S. and in Israel allowed this to happen in order to launch their uh, sequential wars as a result of that. Well, coming back to the Middle East and Assad in Syria is still there three and a half years later. Is he going to stay? Well, I think it all depends on uh, the continuation of Russian and Iranian and Hezbollah. I think that uh, given the NATO opposition, given Saudi opposition, given Israeli opposition, really the formidable alliance of absolutist monarchies, racist states, and uh, NATO... Uh, imperialists uh, make a very formidable opposition and their capacity to sustain terrorist operations against Assad. And without uh, some kind of outside assistance, I think the government would fall. The stalemate up to now will probably continue unless uh, there's a change in the inter international configurations. I think Assad is open uh, to a power-sharing agreement. He's open to a free and open election that could decide what kind of uh, configuration, government configuration. The opposition does not want to risk an election because they're internally fragmented. I think if Assad falls, uh, there's no question in my mind that Syria will be broken up into rival terrorist fiefdoms just like Libya was. Li Libya is the model, a Western model for Syria which is fine with Israel because they're not interested in anything but destroying supporters of the Palestinians. Well, when you talk about that, there's only Iran left then after that, isn't there? That's the salami tactics. They've been slicing Iraq, they slice Syria, they uh, invaded uh, Lebanon. I think they're moving in that direction uh, to encircle Iran. 
And I think Iran is certainly uh, aware of that and uh, hoping to avoid it. They're looking towards some kind of a settlement in uh, Syria. The intransigence of the West, their commitment to destroying Syria is very strong, and they have yet to demonstrate any rationality. Uh, They're not concerned about the uh, 11 million Syrians. They're not concerned about uh, 4 million refugees. They're not concerned about the 200,000 people that are dead. They're only obsession, as it was in Libya, is to destroy the country in order to save it from being a part of an independent nationalist alliance in in the Middle East. Last time we spoke, James, it was just prior to the referendum vote in Greece. The votes happened, the government's capitulated. What's the future? The future is uh, dismal. I I think the agreement that uh, Syriza made is an absolute and total betrayal. It's one of the worst agreements I've seen any government in any circumstances make. And the perversity of uh, Tsipras in in calling a referendum, getting almost a two-thirds majority, and then turning it on its head and embracing slash-and-burn policies Austerities, which will condemn Greece to a hundred years of uh, peonage, is uh, just criminal. I don't see any uh, possibility. They're going to have to call new elections. I don't think the left is in any position, the left opposition of Syriza, to do very much. I think the right wing will come back saying that the Syriza is worse than we were. The Greeks will have to choose between the frying pan and the fire. And that's no choice. I don't see them having an alternative. The Communist Party, its analysis of Syriza was absolutely correct. Their insertion in the mass movements was very weak. And as a result, I don't think they can get more than uh, 6 or 7% of the vote in the next election. The fascists will probably get 10 to 12 or 15%. And the rest will be divided between the uh, NATO puppets so the right-wing new democracy, the far-right social democratic uh, PASOK, and uh, Topotami, the river, which uh, is just a, a band of opportunists. So I, I don't think there's anything worthwhile coming out of the Greek situation. What I think uh, Greece will be condemned to being a colony of Brussels, I think the people will be uh, in dire straits, pensions are being cut, Taxes are being increased. Oligarchs are uh, at your pleasure. Greece will end up being a uh, a very marginal country. I think most of the educated young people will be fleeing the country, looking elsewhere, uh, either going to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, wherever they can go and and, uh, live a decent life. Why is Greece so different to Spain? Spain seemed to have got out of its crisis. Why not Greece? Well, it's not really. It's 24% unemployment is not exactly getting out of the crisis. And most of the new jobs and growth are in uh, sectors where the labor force is getting peanuts and not even getting survival wages, survival hours. They have what they call contratos de basura garbage contracts, which which uh, essentially are three-month, six-month contracts, which are not renewed, which have uh, below minimum wages, 
no health benefits, no pension benefits, etc. So I think these uh, parties like Podemos, uh, we can, and uh, some of the dissident groups that won mayoralty elections have yet to demonstrate their willingness to buck the austerity at the national level. They have to turn it around. They have to nationalize the tax, the banks, uh, in a big way. They have to finance uh, big state projects, infrastructure, schools, hospitals, instead of firing teachers and creating a vast pool of unemployed health workers. I think uh, Spain is totally in the wrong direction and not going anywhere, despite what the financial press is saying. No matter what the Sydney press and what the Melbourne uh, press are saying, Spain is totally immersed. If you can imagine the worst years of the 1930s depression, and multiply it by three. Finally, James, a country we're not hearing much about at the moment is the Ukraine. Ukraine is run by a bunch of thugs and idiots. I, I can't think of anything else. Besides being thugs and idiots, they're stooges of the West. They just put out a, uh, a list of people that are not uh, are threats to the country. They include Sarkozy. They include anybody that criticizes the thievery and, and skulldudgery and, and gangsterism and working with the Nazis. I think the Ukraine is going down the old uh, toilet and, 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 and fast. Uh, the, uh, their military hasn't been paid. They're very demoralized. They have to rely on the Nazis and neo-Nazis and others to maintain some kind of discipline. They're bringing in British and, and U.S. advisors to give some backbone to their frontline forces. Their economy is deeply in debt, showing a negative growth of about 15 to 20 percent. People are worse off than they've ever been. Many would wish for free elections in which some of the uh, political figures of the past were allowed to run again instead of being persecuted and assassinated. The Ukraine is a lost cause for the West. I think they will try and launch a new military offensive against the Federalists in the East, and I think that will precipitate a major crisis. I think they're getting ready uh, to launch a, uh, an offensive, and uh, that will be a way of trying to cover up their failure as a uh, governing elite. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jen, and I wish you well. I hope you have a spring pretty soon. Okay, go along with that one. Well, that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking to me very early this morning from his home in New York where he told me the temperature was about 80-something, 90 degrees. I'm not quite sure what that relates to in hours at the moment but it sounded nice and warm to me and that's all I have for today Jonathan is here for Food Fight and I will be back here next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.